Our second Bible reading is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things, and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray for God's power to be at work among us. In John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Lord Jesus, we want to claim that generous promise this morning. We ask that you would give us minds that understand your word and hearts that receive it gladly. Amen. Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind is a book by Yuval Noah Harari. You may own it yourself. Or you might have seen it in a friend's apartment because Sapiens has sold 21 million copies and it's been translated into 65 languages. But there is a problem with Sapiens, a problem found in its very first sentence. Sapiens treats this universe as if this universe is all there is. Here's the first sentence of the book. About 13.5 billion years ago, matter, energy, time, and space came into being in what is known as the Big Bang, end quote. Matter, energy, time, and space, those are the building blocks of the universe. And Sapiens goes on to explore how human beings fit into the universe. Where's the problem? The problem is that's the wrong starting point for a book about human beings because it doesn't take heaven into account. Heaven is God's dwelling place, and it's not found inside the confines of this universe. It's outside time and space. If you treat this universe as a closed system and leave heaven out of the picture, you'll never understand how human beings truly fit into things trying to understand our place in the universe without reference to God and his purposes is a project that is destined to fail. Today's Bible passage looks at the very things left out of Sapiens, heaven's dealings with earth, God's plans for humanity. You can see heaven mentioned There in verse 1, Jesus raises his eyes to heaven because heaven is where God lives. 
and Jesus is about to pray to him. Heaven is also in view in verse 5, where Jesus asks God to glorify him with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Where were they? God the Father and God the Son before the universe existed. They were in heaven. But today's passage is also about the earth. In verse 2, Jesus talks about the authority he has over all mankind. In verse 3, he talks about being sent. Where was he sent? Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. So the passage talks about heaven. It talks about the earth wonderfully. It doesn't leave us with heaven and earth as separate zones never to be united. In verse 3, Jesus speaks about human beings knowing God, a relationship that brings heaven and earth together. During this sermon, we're going to look first at what Jesus says about heaven, then we'll turn our attention to earth, and finally we'll look at heaven and earth united. These five Bible verses show us how human beings truly fit in to time and space and eternity. We'll begin with heaven. Heaven has been on Jesus' mind throughout his farewell message to the disciples. All the way back in chapter 13, John says, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. Returning to God. Fast forward to chapter 16, and Jesus says to his disciples, Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus says that last part because the disciples just don't seem interested in what things will be like for him when he returns to God in heaven. The situation is somewhat like a teenage girl who's filled with excitement about her ticket to see Taylor Swift in concert, but can't get her family to share her enthusiasm. They're just not interested in what that future experience will be like for her. It's similar with the disciples and Jesus. But Jesus has someone else he can speak to, his Father in heaven. In our passage today, Jesus prays to God. And the content of his prayer shows us how eager he is to return to the Father's side. If you look closely at this prayer that fills all five verses, you'll see that it actually boils down to one very short petition, one three-word ask. It's there in verse 1. Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. In verse 5, that petition is rephrased. Jesus prays, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. But that's just a longer version of the original three-word petition, glorify your Son. Jesus has his eyes raised to heaven. And heaven is where he wants to be. He longs for the glory that he had with the Father before the world was created. But Jesus knows that glorification won't be an easy process for him. He says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
And that's not the first time he's spoken about the hour or time period of his glorification. In the week leading up to the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's John 12, verse 23. It sounds wonderful. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But a few verses later, Jesus again speaks about this same hour, and it doesn't sound wonderful at all. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Something about the hour of Jesus' glorification is troubling to his soul. What's troubling about it? The answer is found in John 12, verse 24, a verse sandwiched between those two verses I've just quoted. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. When Jesus thinks about the hour of his own glorification, he thinks about death and burial. The hour of Jesus' glorification is troubling to him because it includes his death. So when Jesus says in verse 1 of our passage today, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, we mustn't forget that this hour, this time period, was troubling to Jesus' soul. We mustn't forget that it's associated in his mind with death and burial. The hour of Jesus' glorification includes his crucifixion. When Jesus looks ahead to the hour of his glorification, he sees nails, torn flesh, and a crown of thorns, as well as, there in verse 5, the wonder of his future by the side of God the Father. Jesus knows he can't have the glory of heaven without the glory of the cross. When he, pray, when he prays, glorify your son, he's asking God to go through with this hour of glorification. He's asking God to put him on the cross. In his commentary on John's gospel, Leon Morris puts the point like this. Jesus is looking to the cross as he speaks of glory. The glorification of Christ is connected with what appears to human understanding as the very opposite of glory. When we think of glorious things, we typically think of a show at the theatre bringing everyone to a standing ovation or perhaps a Super Bowl winning touchdown. That pass soaring through the air or a gold medal performance at the Olympics, glorious. Or we might think of a special save up your money for it experience, a winter vacation in the Caribbean, glorious. Or a meal at one of New York's finest restaurants. Or perhaps we would think of a career crowning achievement, being made a partner of your firm, glorious. Winning an award, but all your peers in your profession will hear about, for chefs and Michelin star, for Broadway actors, a Tony. Glorious. Those are the kinds of things that typically make us say, that is worthy of praise, that is glorious. But in heaven, the angels say, that is glorious, when they see Revelation 5 verse 12, 
the lamb who was slain. The hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, rightly speaks of Christ's rich wounds, yet visible in heaven above. In the eyes of heaven, those wounds are glorious. The cross is glorious. It's time for us to move on to the next part of the sermon. The heading for this part is Earth. I said at the start that the book Sapiens goes astray the moment it leaves heaven out of the picture. We've been thinking about heaven's plans for Jesus to add the glory of the cross to the glory he had with God before the world existed. How does earth, how do human beings here on earth fit into those plans, heaven's plans? As we answer that question, we'll see why the cross is glorious. Perhaps you've already been wondering about that if you're listening to this sermon as a non-Christian. Perhaps you've been asking yourself, what is so glorious about the cross? How can any reasonable person look at a man nailed to a cross and left there to die and say that's glorious? In brief, the answer is because without the cross, earth wouldn't fit into heaven's plans at all. It's only because of the cross that earth and heaven have a future together. Listen again to John 12, verse 24, one of those verses we heard earlier on the theme of Jesus' glorification. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's obviously an image from the world of agriculture. A single grain of wheat remains just that, one seed. Unless you plant it, if you plant it, if you sow it, it will grow into a stalk bearing multiple heads of grain, a yield of perhaps a hundred grains of wheat from that one original grain. Jesus talks about that agricultural process because he wants us to think about his own upcoming death as fruitful. It will produce a crop, a yield far greater than anything produced by a seed of wheat. Through Jesus' death, everyone who trusts in him is united to him, like grains on a wheat plant springing out of one buried seed. Jesus' death unites believers to God because it was a sin-bearing, punishment-paying death. He stood in for us. To cleanse us from sin. To make us righteous in the sight of God. What a sacrifice. How glorious it is. There is no other way for sinful human beings like you and me to become sinless and spotless and suitable for relationship with God. Only the glorious cross can do it. Now, from our perspective, we receive that salvation, we receive eternal life when we hear the good news about Jesus and choose to put our trust in him. But verse 2 shows us another perspective, God's perspective. Verse 2 shows us there's more going on than meets the eye when someone puts their trust in Jesus. In verse 2, the you 
is God the Father and that him, he, is Jesus, the Son. Listen to verse 2. Just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To all whom you have given him. Jesus is saying that every real Christian has been given by God the Father to God the Son, with the result that God the Son has given that person eternal life. Out of the entire population of humanity, the Son receives a group that's been gift-wrapped by the Father for him. And Jesus gives those people eternal life. The point here isn't that human beings lack agency or responsibility. The whole Bible says we are responsible for our own actions. Verse 2 isn't taking away human responsibility. It's placing it within divine sovereignty. It's a little bit like West Side Market on Broadway and 97th Street. When shoppers go into West Side Market, they pass the freshly baked cookies on their right. They can't get further into the store without passing those cookies that smell as freshly baked cookies smell so wonderfully. And so even though cookies may not be on their shopping list, many shoppers will reach out, take a bag of cookies and put it in their shopping basket. They are responsible for that shopping decision. It is their arm reaching out to take a bag of cookies. But Westside Market has heavily influenced their decision making by placing delicious smelling cookies in that part of the store, that unignorable part of the store. In a somewhat similar way, when someone trusts in Christ, yes, it's because they've noticed him. Perhaps a friend has spoken to them about him, or they've heard a sermon, or they've read a bit of the New Testament, and they're drawn to him, to his beautiful character and all the good things he offers. And so they decide to put their trust in him and receive eternal life. But behind the scenes, God the Father has been influencing that whole process, influencing it so completely that Jesus can say what he says in verse 2, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. What that verse means is that if you're a real Christian, you should give thanks not only to the Son for his death that pays for your salvation, but also to the Father for covering you in gift wrap and giving you to his Son. Their combined desire to save can also be seen in verse 4, where Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. He's talking about the work of salvation. God the Father commissioned Jesus to carry out that work. There's a hymn that begins with the lines, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, oh, the grace that brought it down to man. That love and grace isn't just found in Jesus the Son, it's also found in God the Father. Together they designed and accomplished salvation's plan, and they did it with 
particular people in view, saved people like you and me. The Bible is clear that we haven't done anything to deserve that salvation. Three times in verse 2, Jesus uses the word give. As believers, we've received what the Father and Son have generously given by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And if you're listening as a non-Christian, I hope you're not feeling excluded, permanently excluded by the teaching of this passage. That is not the point of this passage at all. It gives us a glimpse behind the scenes, yes, but it doesn't take away our individual responsibility. Speaking personally, I was once as non-Christian as a non-Christian can be. I heard about Jesus and I put my trust in him. You've now heard about Jesus. If you're a non-Christian listening to this sermon, and you can also put your trust in him. God wants you to put your trust in him. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's press on to the final part of the sermon. Heaven and earth united. Heaven and earth united. We've seen Jesus asking God to glorify him wants to return to the glory of heaven via the glory of the cross. That death and burial will bear the fruit of salvation. But what is salvation for? What's the end game, the outcome? It's there in verse 3, heaven and earth united in relationship. And this is eternal life, Jesus says in verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 3 corrects a, a big mistake that many people have about eternal life, which is to think that it's mainly about quantity of life. Whereas in fact, it's mainly about quality of life. Yes, eternal life is never-ending. Yes, that is wonderful and good. But Jesus puts the emphasis on the life part of eternal life, because he talks about relationship, knowing God, knowing him, Jesus. It's life in all its fullness because it's life in relationship with God. That goes on forever. That is the relationship we need. We need to be on good terms with our creator in heaven, knowing him, enjoying his friendship and his love. Without that relationship, everything will be dislocated and unstable for a person. It might not always feel like that for them. It might not ever feel like that for them. But that's the accurate analysis of where they truly stand. Jesus realigns heaven and earth. Without that realignment, without Jesus, without the eternal union with heaven that he gives there can be no true stability. Heaven and earth will remain dislocated for the person who isn't reunited with heaven through Jesus.
in the podcast series Heavyweight. There's an episode where the host of the podcast, Jonathan Goldstein, speaks very openly about his life without God. He says at one point in the episode, I'm still surprised by how precarious my sense of stability can be. There are times, often nice times, enjoying a good meal with people I love when the darkness descends, unasked for and sudden. And I need to hit reset in the bathroom with cold water on my face. End quote. My heart goes out to Jonathan Goldstein because those times of unasked for darkness reveal the truth about life without God. We desperately need the eternal stability that comes with knowing God being reunited with heaven through Jesus. There is no meaningful stability without that. Only the prospect of judgment that human beings deserve for our wrongdoing in God's sight. It's so different for a Christian. For a Christian, even the worst times, the most agonizing times, have the potential for glory as we remain united to heaven through faith in Jesus. That's one of the lessons John wants us to learn from his gospel, the hour of Jesus' crucifixion was the hour of his glorification. There was glory in the midst of agony and horror. And the same can be true of our worst times if we hold on to faith in Jesus. Our suffering doesn't achieve the same thing that Jesus' suffering achieved. It doesn't atone for sin. But there can be glory in it as we hold on to faith. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Or think of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, even our hardest times, our most difficult times, that verse says, are worked together for the good of those who love God and have been called according to his purpose. There can be glory in our hardest times, our most agonizing times, as we hold on to faith in Jesus. We typically think that our difficulties and our trials are unredeemably awful. We just want them to stop and end. But that's not quite right. What could be more difficult more agonizing or horrible than the cross of Christ? What could be more glorious than the cross of Christ? Our hard times can be glorious times. And when we see that, they will be easier to endure. 
once you're reunited with heaven, realigned with heaven through Jesus, even those worst times of your life can be touched with heaven's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for glorifying your Son. We give you thanks for hearing his petition and overseeing his crucifixion. We know the costliness of that death for Jesus himself. We also know the costliness for you as you saw your own son go through those things. We give you praise and thanks for the glory of the cross through which we have eternal life, relationship with you, salvation, forgiveness of sins. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see even the hardest things in our lives as opportunities for the glory of heaven to be shown. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.